You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul. Um, our theme music is a clip of Summer Nights by the Eric Jones Trio. It's provided by our friend Mark Chesanel, who plays with the Eric Jones Trio every Thursday and Sunday at Good Times Jazz Bar downtown. Hey everyone, welcome to Arts on the Air. This is Tamara Garvey, and I'm sitting down with printmaker Curtis Bartone. Welcome, Curtis. So Hello. glad to have you. I'm gonna read um, a little bit from your website of your statement. Um, My paintings, drawings, and etchings focus on the uneasy relationship between human beings and the natural world, exploring the idea of wilderness and how it has changed from being a real place, mysterious, unknown, and pristine, to a distorted fiction. Can you describe what do you mean by a distorted fiction? I was curious about that. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting that you know our perception of the natural world comes a lot from television, um, you know, what we search on our computer, like if you search for giraffes, you'd get this idea that these really big, pristine places exist with giraffes. And it, like our perception of that is not direct. So there's a mediated experience. Yeah, there. like everything through screens. Mm-hmm. And even, but even going back to, you know, I like to look back at like natural science illustrations and stuff like that. That was also a, a intermediary between our experience. And, yeah, it's true. Yeah, you're looking at whatever the artist, whatever they happen to be <clears throat> filtering through. Right. Wasn't that kind of an idea when they started doing scientific illustrations for medical textbooks that they specifically, like, in some areas they want it to be by an artist and not a, not a photograph because it's easier for the students to, like, like learn by the diagrams if some of the information is taken away and it's only the things they really need to see. Right, and I look at those... Um, uh, uh, 18th century um, illustrations of anatomy illustrations by Albinus that were like these flayed (laughs) figures that were in these Roman (laughs) landscapes. So they're beautiful and great. It's really wonderful. It's like a ghoulish half body (laughs) in a landscape. Um, But I even go back to um, like top cells animals where they're a mix of observed, um, observed natural world mixed with these mythological things. So it's part legend, part yeah. And it's written authoritatively, like, this is... Oh, it's stated to be so. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, satyrs and, you know... <laughs> you know what but, what but, era is that from? Um, that would be... I'm, I'm really bad with dates. I think that would be, like, um, uh, 17th century. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, or 18th. Um, but it's Top Cell's History of Beasts, it's Just called. History of Beasts, like I love terrible, that. These terrible wood engravings, too. Okay, <laughs> I have to look um, that up. Yeah, it's really exciting. <laughs> that really, the way you describe it, that just make your art just makes so much sense, because I had a note to ask you about this later. But yeah, a lot of times it looks like, it's like realistic animals in these sort of like garden of good and evil type wild mm-hmm. hellscapes, <laughs> almost. Um, how did you, so <clears throat> how did you originally get into this, uh, this like, this concept that you were looking at is this how your art is always focused uh no no it, it um it's sort of it, it's a weird evolution and then you start to develop your own iconography so yeah. you, you know so it, it becomes so convoluted after a while that it's hard like I, I always dread like I always tell my students you need kind of an elevator pitch about your work and then I'm like well I don't really have one. a little yeah <laughs> like a little tiny part, <laughs> but uh, right? but anyway so I started I'm really interested in Dutch 17th century still lives and that okay. whole symbolism of you know, these wealthy people would commission a painter to show, this is how wealthy I am. This is all yes. the things I can take from all over the there world. There would be that all decadent, these really Right, that decadent. But then, yeah, then, then there's also the, the sort of religious undercurrent. It's yeah. like, you're still going to die. And, you know, um, I got into that and I started, um, I started doing work about food. So I'd make these really decadent paintings about Okay. Uh, really, I would, I would pirate them from, you know, fancy cookbooks and stuff. And I would just imagine these, Spreads of ridiculous yeah, like these food that didn't go that together, amazing. and I would take things from like, uh, like like Jello cookbook, where you know there's these things that are really made out of plaster that are being photographed, and I would put those in. Um, then I started combining them with, and these were all mainly still life based. I started. Is this com- when you were an undergrad? Um, this was this was after grad school. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the the pre like my school experience, I was working with very busy um, compositions, and that's how I. I'm moving away from that a little bit, yeah. but a lot of pattern-based things, and, and that sort of informed my aesthetic, but when I got out of grad school, I started, um, my work changed, yeah. um, but anyway, so I was food-based and still life-based, and then I realized I was taking my classes to draw, uh, I was living in Chicago, that's where I pretty much established my art career. Your early adulthood. Yeah, um, and it, it's still what formed me, like I, 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 those artists, I know better than artists that are based in New York, Okay. Um, but anyway, the... 
I would go to the field museum with my drawing classes and the field museum of natural history and we draw all the animals and stuff and I'm like I'm drawing with them and I'm, I'm like hmm these are also things that are collected and presented just like a spread of food in a yeah. magazine and they might have religious so I started putting those content. in um, you know where there was a question what were they doing here are they dead or alive um, and something really interesting happened um, and then I started other consumable things entered the work um, I started listening how wealthy people collect vacations you know so they have like a postcard and they're like I went there and they check it off and I started to put postcard backgrounds in these things okay. so I wanted that sort of all these things that could be collected or or experienced were you in, doing indirectly. like an animal that wouldn't naturally be yes. in that environment so yes. they were like an ironic yeah and, and also that we that it happens a lot um, like and, and I I'm I get ideas a lot from things I read. I, I read, and I, I read a Saul Bellow book uh, called Ravelstein, and there's a scene in that book where the only time this guy notices nature is living in Chicago is he sees a flock of parrots that has escaped parakeets, okay. and he's wondering how in the world they live because it just in looks the winter. so yeah, yeah and, and I you know so a lot of my work is a, a, like that almost it's oh, like kind of this, I like this, that. These things that get taken where they don't belong and they, yes. they end up there. Like all these, there's these moments through history <clears throat> where an animal was accidentally taken to a, isn't that how like, like wild boars were introduced Everything. to Hawaii yeah, and they shouldn't and, be and there and they're tearing it up? islands that are eating all the birds and. Right, right. Like, yeah, and, and then they end up destroying the natural ecosystem. Right, yeah. Right. Um, and, but even, even things we import, you know, for our gardens and they go like Kudzu. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Was that so in Chicago, do you feel like, um, were you sort of, did it hit you because you're sort of like starved for seeing yes. natural beauty and yeah and I grew up in a, um, um, on a farm actually but I was raised in the city and then my parents got divorced I moved to a farm um, and I got really into birds and I still am yeah and so I spent a lot of time roaming and just you know watching wildlife and watching birds and I thought I would go into that I was so driven to art oh that you might but I thought I might go into like like ornithology or something. yeah oh, ornithology and I guess in um, birds specifically, when you're talking about animals that are in a place that they shouldn't be, mm -hmm. birds are like, they would have the easiest time doing that, right? Right. They can get themselves somewhere else. Right. <laughs> and they often do. They often, some of them don't. They're, um, there's a, a book uh, called World on the Wing, Wing uh, World on the Wings. It's about how amazing birds are, but they often get, they're, they're, their homing device is wrong yeah. and they end up in the wrong place. And that can be a beneficial thing because if they end up, you know, adapting to climate change or something, it's yeah, a good thing. Then but but they, they, they will end up in, that's why we'll see, huh. you know, some weird South American bird that would never be native here. Is it just one random bird that yeah. it's off or yeah. would it be a whole flock? Be, no, it's usually okay. just one that <laughs> ends up somewhere it's not <laughs> well, supposed to. Yeah. So that's what that reminds me. Um, I have a drawing that I did where <clears throat> I came across, I also was just reading randomly, and I came across this one bird called the Arctic Tern, and mm. it has the biggest um, migration of any bird because it goes back and forth between the Arctic and Antarctica. So there's... You know, there's mm -hmm. no possible further place for it to go. And it's this tiny little cute bird that migrates the entire globe. It's kind of incredible. They're tiny cute birds. Um, I was in Iceland, and they're tiny cute birds that are really territorial and oh. will actually dive bomb you. Oh, wow. Did you have that experience? Birds, and it so, yes. Um, and we wondered why people were wearing bicycle helmets where we wow. were. Wow. Yeah, so we ended up being driven out of their territory pretty fast. Uh, that's so funny you brought that up. I did make a note to ask you later about Iceland because that sounded pretty incredible. Um, so let's, so we'll back up a little bit. Were you, um, when you went to grad school, were you already focused on printmaking? Did you have to get? Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a latecomer to printmaking. Okay. Um, I took lithography in undergraduate school, um, but I was a painter. Um, and yeah. I, I mean, I, painters are really, they can, they can be egotistical. Like I'm a painter, you know, and I, I had that attitude. And, <laughs> Um, it's I like a macho kind uh, of thing. Yeah, I went to Columbus College of Art and Design in Columbus, Ohio, and and it, it was just a fine arts major, and you specialize right. in something. So I specialized in painting. So I took printmaking and ceramics. Um, I took lithography, and I liked it, but I didn't love it. Yeah. And I learned it, and I we we uh, uh, there was a guy named um, James Weigel who was Tamron trained. That's all lithographers that are really good lithographers are trained at Tamron Institute in New Mexico. Oh. We called him the 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 litho Nazi because he would he would knock our grade down if we had ink on the backs of our prints. Oh, he's a real purist. And he would make and he would make us proof up with really stiff ink, so it would take us like a hundred prints to get it to be dark enough. You know, just like to 
you know, oh. um, so he taught a... traditional stone lithography. Okay. Um, is that, so when you talk about stiff ink and then it takes you a lot of passes to get it, is that a really traditional way It's a way to, to make it, like it so care? that when you first print a stone, it doesn't want to behave. It, it, you creep up on it so that it, yeah. it starts to You're not going to mess it, it up. Right, right. That's no. all like watercolor where you have to go yes. slowly and do little washes because you can push it too far. Right. Were you, so I would think, um, so I'm really excited to talk to you just about printmaking in general because I just feel like it's so mysterious and if people haven't taken specific art classes, they have no idea about printmaking. But I would imagine like when you were going to school also that it would have been even more like yeah. odd and quirky and so niche and like, you know, to major in art is already, you're kind yeah. of taking a risk. But if you major in painting, then people can understand that. They can wrap their head around it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I didn't do printmaking, um, and then I went to grad school, and there was a guy named Philip Chen, um, who <clears throat> is now at Drake uh, in Iowa, but I, I went to Northwestern, which is what brought me to Chicago, and he taught me etching, and it completely, like, I love Albrechter, so yeah. I'm like, this is what he did, right, and right. this is what Rembrandt Those did, and I'm out like, bodies. And, so, and you know, the thing about printmaking that's really interesting is you immediately, even if you're doing something contemporary, there's always that edge that taps into that hole. Yes. Like there's a look. The look of is, it, it looks very are, ancient. Even if you can't draw like Rembrandt, you're doing something that looks like. Yes. It, um, it has this look of like like a botanical illustration, a book <clears throat> that has the word figure on it, mm -hmm. and it's lightly right, watercolored. Right. It just has that era to it. Um, and then I was hooked, and I just, um, you know, I got my degree in painting, um, but my thesis show was mostly drawings and etchings okay. and a few paintings, which they did not like, but, um, <laughs> but you would, you would everything I do, yeah, everything I do is drawing. I love drawing. Yeah, so everything is basis. drawing based and, and real printmakers that like majored in printmaking, you know, if I say for me, it's just a, a, a totally different way to make a drawing. That's what attracted me to it. Yeah. It interferes. And so you kind of have to accept its interference, which I really like. There's some chaos um, in it. Yeah. And, and you have to go, oh, I put that in the acid too long. What am I going to do? Right. So you scrape into it, and you end up with something way better than what you would Yeah, have. it's a lot. It seems it's sort of like when I've talked to ceramicists <clears throat> that it's a little science and it's a little art. And you, depending on how kind of anal you are about it, you're either keeping notes and trying to replicate things or things spin off. And like it could be the temperature. It could be the mm -hmm. consistency of things. There's a lot to it, like baking. And, and um, so I... You know, the hardest thing for a printmaker, so I got really hooked on printmaking, and then I graduated, and there's no place to print. Luckily, I was in Chicago, so um, <clears throat> so I would, I was teaching at a whole bunch of places, um, and I was at the Evanston Art Center in Evanston, north of Chicago, and they had a print shop, so I would teach okay. a couple classes, and we got to take a class for free. So That's I was great. there, and I worked with um, uh, Audrey Niffenegger, who was one of my fellow grad students, and we had our thesis show together, in fact. Um, and she was a really good etcher, and so I worked with her a lot. And um, <clears throat> so I, w w the nice thing about that is because I had a weird printmaking education, I learned how to like mix all my own stuff and how to work with really shoddy equipment oh, okay. and how to fix it. And and that was a really good. Yeah, I think that's my good training. Yeah, um, but I only did etching. That was all I was interested in. Can you describe for people a little bit? Can you encapsulate lithography and etching? Oh yeah, okay. So the. Uh, the process is the easiest one is relief, right? So you carve <clears throat> whatever's carved away doesn't print. You roll ink over the top. The top surface okay. prints. Intaglio picture like a rubber stamp. Right. So intaglio is like the opposite. Um, there's other differences, but but the the principle is the opposite. So you're inking it. You're wiping the ink off, and it stays in the low areas. Okay. So relief is the high areas print. Intaglio is the low areas print, so you're wiping the ink off that surface and it's staying in all the lines and texture, whatever texture you put on the plate. Now, how you get the texture on the plate, there's a whole chemistry thing involved, like you know, using acids to make lines or drawing them basically yeah. into the plate. Lithography is nothing like the other two. So lithography, which is what I'm mostly teaching and making now, okay. um, is this magic process where if you do it traditionally, it's done in these Bavarian limestones that come from exactly where a guy named Alois Senefelder invented lithography in 1796. In Solenhof in Germany, all of our limestones come from there. But anyway, um, you draw with special greasy materials, crayons, uh, washes that have okay. grease. And, Almost like and, this wax. Yeah, and wax, wax too. Um, but the wax, the wax will print, but the grease actually bonds with the calcium carbonate of the stone, and it becomes a permanent sort of it attracts anything oil-based. And then you process the other part of the stone, the non what we call the non-image area, where you didn't draw. Hmm. 
like water. So when you print them, you actually wet the stone and roll ink over the top, and the two repel each other. So you have ink sticking where it's supposed to, where you drew, magically, because you chemically, it's not magic, you chemically processed it to do this. And then you have water sticking in the non-image areas that repel the ink. So it's, it's basically based on the idea that oil and water don't like each other. Wow. Are you rolling a stone under a heavy roller? The yes. Stone and the paper? So then when you pr you're actually printing these. So I have these, some of these students, you know, teeny tiny students moving these huge stones around the shop. So we have a lift, we have, oh. um, and it's very physical. Um, and you have to, when you're done printing, you actually have to grain, we call it, uh, it's, a, it's a thing called a levigator where you wet the stone, you put different, it's almost like sandpaper, but grits, hmm. and you grind it off. You grind the image it off. off? Yeah, and then you polish it back down so you can draw on it again, so. So you can reuse it. Yeah, so these stones have had hundreds of drawings on them. How thick is this stone when you get it? It's about, Usually when you get them, they're about like maybe okay, it's like eight to ten inches. inches, and then they start to wear down. And oh then if they wear down enough, they'll either crack or you can mount them on a piece of um, granite. Okay. Yeah, you, so I, I had been picturing like a very thin thing, but you're, you're describing it's like six inches thick. So yeah, I can imagine you can polish that down and use that a lot. Yeah, and it's only a, just a really tiny amount. You're, you might be taking a sixteenth right, of an inch off each time. So they still all come from Bavaria? Yes, and, and, and indirect. Cause, so there's... Printmaking, all the processes go in and out of fashion. So there was a time, Clemson's a really good example recently, where they're like, we're going to go all digital. So they get rid of all their stones, and that's how we have so many. And then we're oh. sitting really pretty when suddenly everyone wants to do stone lithography. And oh, there we are with fashion. these really nice stones. Yeah. <laughs> People um, are clamoring students, for these stones. Yeah, and we have you know <laughs> students that just get totally hooked on it. And, hmm. um, and then we, but we do more more contemporary. So we do photo based versions of all of the, all of the processes. I'm so interested in this very specific. So is there like is there ever going to be a shortage of these stones produced in this one region? This uh, well, the, the limestone quarries in Solenhofen, Germany are still uh, producing limestone, Incredible. and it's actually a really famous fossil place too. Wow, well, have you ever gone there? No, to no, see it, like I'd to see the to. mecca, right? I'd love to. Oh my god! Can you um, stand at this quarry and like yell into it? It <laughs> <laughs> would be really great. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, so so ours come from, and and I just bought one for myself that had a high school diploma on it that was probably eighty years old. Oh my gosh! So you know they used to. I mean, because lithography was the way everything was printed. It yeah. still is. I mean, newspapers and everything, but you know, not stones. So yeah, so you described, so it's a very physical art, the limestone in particular. And the etchings, so those are into, is it copper plates? Yeah, okay. so um, they're usually done in copper. And I say usually, because intaglio is really a way of printing, like I said, you know, but um, it, the most common is etching and engraving, which is similar, just not using acid. Do you, okay, yeah, and the acid, so the acid how do the people way get that their works, hands on So this? you have, and lithography is really the only technique that we know exactly when it was invented because the guy wrote it down and he was trying to do something else, but he was actually trying to do etching. But um, oh. etching works where you have a metal plate and then you have a, if you're doing true etching, which is using chemistry, um, it has a ground on it. So, so if you put it in the acid, nothing would happen. But if you break through that ground, the acid can get there and make, usually you use a sharp tool that you can make lines okay. and then you get cross hatching and hatching. When you put it in the acid, the acid does the work for you. You're, so you're dipping just trapping, it into yeah, the acid. Right. In, in our case, it's ferric chloride, which is really a heavy corrosive salt. So it's much safer Interesting. than nitric acid, which is how I learned. And an in, in etching plate, you, you don't reuse that over and over again, right? You actually, if it's, if it's a dry point where you just draw into it with your muscle, yeah. you, know, um, you can sand it down and use it a few times. Huh. Um, they used to do that. Um, like when copper had to be like hand hammered and everything yeah. they would they would press it again and use it oh there's so, so many can, ins and outs to it yeah you can use it um and then there's other ways so it's all about you know things resisting the acids so there's something called aquatint which is you put a fine powder that you basically melt on the plate and between where it's melted it's making the acid can get so it makes this even looking tone so the longer it goes in the acid the darker it gets so, and you can stop out areas you don't want yeah. that to be how do you so for your own personal work I saw on your website you have you've had broken down you have paintings you have drawings and you have printmaking how do you like say you're beginning a new series how do you decide that you're going to do etching versus lithography is it a question of like how big the final image is going to be or how detailed you need it to be are there that's a really good question um, and I get I get bored with working in you know so I jump around yeah, a lot yeah. um, but there are images that I I have an idea in my head and it just appears as that needs to be an etching, or that okay. needs to be a woodcut, and it mainly comes because I've done, you know, done each, so I kind of know what the language is. Like, 
uh, and, uh, and I sometimes abandon ship. Like I, the, the, the woodcut that I showed you that I just started proofing, the really detailed one, Yeah. I started that as a lithograph because I wanted it to kind of look like a Dutch still life. And I thought, well, more drawing kind of based. And I started it and I'm like, I'm not into this. It was but working. I, 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 but I think it would make a good woodcut because I would change it. It was, it, was, uh, it was kind of just going along as I expected, which was boring to me. Okay. Um, so this would kind of shift it into a different realm. So what changed about it when it became a woodcut? Um, it became a lot more, uh, the space flattened out a little bit. And it became a little less fussy. I mean, even though it's a very fussy woodcut, but um, it became more about the pattern and the repetition of the marks. And I like that better for this image. Is there more, um, so with different, do you call it different fields of printmaking or different specialties? I guess you call it different processes. Different processes. Yeah. Are there, yeah, um, are, are some of them more conducive to things that are more detailed or doing things yeah, in color? Yeah, definitely. Or, okay. um, I tell my students this all the time. They'll come to me with this really detailed like pen drawing, and they're like, I'm going to do a woodcut. I'm like, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's good. You can do it, but it's not going to look anything like this. Oh, right, right. Um, where you could do an etching that looks just like a pen, you know, really detailed okay. pen drawing. Because um, what is the tool that you use for the etching? <clears throat> it's, yeah, it's an etching needle. Etching needle. Um, and that can or be very... a scribe. It's called a scribe. But, um, oh, that's very old-timey sounding. Yeah. A scribe. So that can be very, very fine. So that's very fine. what you'd yeah. recommend if somebody is in um, detail. Yeah, and I didn't have them to, sh to show you because I just took them down. But I, I used to work like that, really, yeah. really just busy, busy detail. Mm. With the time, what people think of these like tiny hatch <clears throat> marks, right, where you're just mm -hmm. going really crazy. But etching can also be very painterly. Um, you know, they can go in different directions, but there's yeah. always a certain look an etching has. What I like about etching a lot is I work with, <clears throat> I work a little differently where I let the etching kind of run out of control and then I rein it back in. How do you rein it back in? Uh, so, so I'll put it in the acid too long and then I'll, I'll, everything will go too dark. And then I'll, you can actually, with metal, it's much more forgiving than a, a lithograph or a relief print. Okay. Um, so I'll actually go in with scrapers and burnishers and bring the lights back out. So it's almost like doing an eraser drawing. Do you so when you're when you're gonna do a print, have you done like a very very specific drawing of it, or are you kind of just doing the drawing on the plate? Well, this woodcut was time? very rare. I I got really into drawing on the block, and I made too much of a drawing. Okay. Um, but I found it fun because I had to interpret those as, as cut marks. But the longer I make work, and I, my paintings are the same, I start with really rough thumbnails and a ton of reference. Like I'll have pictures I took, I'll have little sketches I made, yeah. and I'll piece them together on the actual work. So like I'll put them collage. in, yeah, but I'll, and so it's more like I'm collaging them in the work by drawing them in, and then I'll move them around and leave the traces of things. Okay. So I feel like it fits more how, what I'm trying to say with the work, where I'm, I'm kind of trying to, trying to order something that doesn't necessarily want to be ordered or, you know, that chaos order balance. Yeah. Um, and having that actually be part of my process. Um, and because I tend to be, I, I love drawing and I love detail and I, I spent a lot of time learning how to draw and I like that to be part of my work. But then there's also this, when I start a painting and it's really gestural, I love it. You know, and, yeah. and, and but I, it isn't what I want it ultimately to be, but I want both of those things in there. You had in the painting section on your website, the first one, I was different from, I mean, I really responded to it. The other ones were more uh, finished, but the first thumbnail on your website, it was like just kind of tones of sepia and it was very gestural and there were areas that were unfinished and just kind of like gestural lines. And it was very beautiful and it was different from all the other ones. But it also just, maybe just the fact that a lot of it was sepia, it, it, that almost, that feels like it's a etching as well. Just that color kind of. Yeah, and I, I, uh, those etchings, and I showed you some of the, when we're walking here, um, have both of those things. So I yeah. have two plates, and one of them is just like wild gesture drawing, and then the other one has little areas. It's really detailed, yeah. Detailed. I love that juxtaposition um, in there. And you mentioned unfinished. It's the hardest thing for me to do, and it took me so long, because um, I like to fill everything. And just leaving things go. Yeah. And it's hard to do, but it's also harder to make a piece that, I like I want it to be unfinished. But I don't want it, there's a there's a point where you don't want it to actually you don't want someone to look at it and go that's not finished right, right. but you want areas of no finish or less finish. Um, it's yeah you have to make to it look like done. you have to make it look like it was in your control and you did that on purpose right yeah right. Um, but 
to me, it's hard. It's, I, when I worked where I filled every square inch, I knew when I was done. Right. Usually I was just tired of it. But um, this is like, I don't, I fuss with these forever. And I'm, and I like try different things. Yeah, like and I'm pull like, in yeah, and, go back. and I, I, I pull things out of it, and I like that process. But sometimes I just have to go. I don't know if this is done, but I'm gonna stop. Do you think over time, do you feel like you're getting better at like not having to go back and forth so much into it? But like earlier in that process, you can be like, this is a good point. It's good. Yes. Do yes, they get better definitely, over time? Definitely. I get. I get. <laughs> um, but I usually make it harder on myself. I'll switch techniques or I'll start combining. You know. Yeah. And I do I don't do that as much as some artists do. I really like to be in the little the separate rooms. Like I like to be in the litho room. Okay. I do litho and I like to be in the etching room and do etchings. I have mixed the two a few times. Um but um but I find that, you know, it, to me I like to limit that. But then um but I'll switch when I when I find myself repeating myself or getting oh, I don't yeah, like to just be get too, a little bored. It sounds stupid, but I don't like to get too comfortable with what I'm doing. Like yeah. I I never wanted to be someone that could just oh here do a pa- quick pastel drawing that you know right like I with a, your I have a shed, system you can just yeah I have off. a system I don't want a system. Do you find is there a particular like type of student who comes to start you know taking classes in the painting and printmaking department who really responds to printmaking like what do you think oh, yes. is it in people Oh yes um, and sometimes they respond to a process like I'll have them in relief class and they they do okay and then they get into litho and they're like yeah. Then I see them in intermediate litho. They want to take an independent study. I have um, right. two or three right now that are amazing lithographers. Like, I'm like, you, you need to go, you know, find a shop and make lithographs. They just, mm. it's more their language than it is my language. You know, like, um, I have a certain way I use it and it, I fit it into what I'm doing. But they're like lithographers. I mean, they just like yeah. think that way. And um, Is it something about their subject matter? Yeah, and even the way it? they think in layers. Mm. Um, they're... Uh, a couple students doing big multicolor um, kind of painterly but they're using even though they're using photo processes they're making their own transparencies and shooting them um, and layering those and some of the just like students are always amazing me like just how fast they can especially at SCAD 10 weeks how fast they can learn a whole lot it is and the the idea that you're talking about that in lithography you have to think in layers that is a really specific kind of mindset like people who are either good at chess and they can look Mm -hmm. really far ahead or not Mm -hmm. yeah I can't (laughs) <laughs> and right. I have a limited amount that I can do that my background is um, and you, you said know, you responded yeah. more to etching right that you, yeah. would, you took I like the I like the workability of etching too mm. like you can't I always tell this to my students and I tell it to myself when I because I don't always take my own advice you know you tell your students stuff and then run, you run into the same situation and you're like I need to think about what I would say to myself but um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I like the fact that the more you have to fix an etching plate, the better it gets. Like if you if you have to hmm. correct something, it usually it likes to be beat up. Where lithograph, you have to listen to what it wants to do. You can't just say I'm just going to do what I want with a lithograph. You don't have as much control over right, it. Right, right. I mean, there's certain steps you need to take, or it just looks like a bad lithograph. Um, oh, interesting. Where etching, you know, you can really beat it up, and you could start okay. with the most horrible thing and make it look. And you like can save good. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that. Okay. And relief too, you know, it's hard to rescue if you overcarve something. It's too far. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Well, this is great. We have so much more to talk about. This is a good time. We're going to take a little station break. Again, everyone, this is Tamara Garvey. Um, The show is Arts on the Air, and I'm here with printmaker Curtis Bartone. You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul. Trees are one of Chatham County's most treasured natural resources. Beyond their beauty and cultural significance, the impact of trees are far-reaching and compounding, spanning from economic benefits to health improvements to climate change resilience. Trees are woven into every aspect of our lives. Savannah Tree Foundation protects and grows Chatham County's urban forest through tree planting, community engagement, and advocacy. More information is available at savannatree.org. This portion of WRUU's programming is brought to you by listeners and by Brighter Day Natural Foods. Brighter Day Natural Foods has been serving Savannah's healthy food and supplement needs since 1978. It is located at the corner of Bull Street and Park Avenue. They have online ordering and curbside delivery available. And now a walk-up window for smoothies, juices, and sandwiches from the deli. 
They are open from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday and 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Sunday. More information can be found at brighterdayfoods.com. What does it mean when we say that WRUU is a community radio station? It doesn't just mean that we invite the community to create programming. And it doesn't just mean that we're a voice for the community. It also means that we're counting on the community to keep us going. And you are the community. Almost all of our modest budget comes from small annual or monthly donations from listeners like you. You get to enjoy our community-focused programming because many others have stepped forward to do their part. Now do your part by joining our community of listener donors. Go to WRUU.org right now and make a one-time or monthly donation. And thank you for supporting Savannah's community radio station, 107.5 FM. Hey everyone, welcome back to Arts on the Air. This is Tamara Garvey and I'm with printmaker Curtis Bartone. Welcome back. Um, so Curtis does his own work and then he also is a printmaking professor at SCAD. And you touched on this a little bit before I wanted to get into it um, more, but you talked about uh, a lot of times in printmaking things go in editions, like you're mm -hmm. going to do a run of 10 or 20 or whatever, and you talked about the pricing of that. And I was curious if, um, I mean, the amount of time that goes into doing a, a print, is it hard to like price it appropriately to feel like you're recouping the time in it? How does that go? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's a hard thing because, you know, there's always that balance. And I was with, I've worked with galleries and I was with a gallery in Chicago, um, Byron Roach, and uh, closed a few years back. Um, but he, he used to just joke, because I always, add, it's a fascinating topic to me, how you price artwork. Yeah. And he's like, I price it for as much as I can get for it. Like, you know, and there's he a limit, right? He just knows right? his, yeah. he knows his and, he, and he said, you know, sometimes the psychology is if you price it higher, it looks like you value yourself more. So it's a weird right. thing. But yeah. uh, there's a, there's sort of a hierarchy in the art world. So sculpture and painting are at the top, right? And then you have drawing, and then you have printmaking, and mm. then you have photography. So it's like, there's only so much you could ask for a print, especially if you're not like super famous. Um, but I mean, you, you, you do make more of them. So when you sell one, it's not like you're only one. Yeah. So there is that. But you said you don't um, like doing that. You don't like doing multiples? Uh, I do. Well, no, I, no, um, I do multiples, but right. I don't make big additions okay. and it's not what interests me about it. It, it does like, and if I work, I've, I've done print projects with painters that their main goal was their gallery wanted something at a lower price point that they could also, you know, get out yeah, more. And I do it. like that democratic idea about printmaking, the fact that people that aren't wealthy can collect art. Like, I yeah. buy prints all the time. Um, but what bothers me about it is it's considered a lower art form because of that. And people, I, I think artists sometimes hurt each other that way, where you'll have someone go, oh, I could sell these for $15 a piece. And it's like, you can it's true, but you're making, you're screwing Should it up you? for everyone else, right? right. right. Um, and you're also not making any money. Um, <clears throat> but it's a, it's a, for me, it takes a lot more time to make the matrix. The, the matrix is the part you make the print from, like woodblock or whatever. Okay. Um, that takes a long, it takes me a long, a long, long time to develop and make, get it to where I want it. <clears throat> and then to actually, the physical work is a lot. Yeah, the printing of it. And then... I can knock out a painting in probably a quarter of the time. Like, I, you know, even a larger painting. Really? You know, I paint really fast. And, um, and I could get so much more for it. Yeah. There's an interesting thing also that, I mean, even if it's a painting, but something on paper people don't value as highly right, exactly. as on canvas or panel, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. But things on paper, you have to, you have to frame them is mm -hmm. a whole aspect to it. And it has to be behind glass. And people don't always want that in their home. There's that aspect of mm -hmm. it, the glass work as well. So in, when you're doing an edition of printmaking, what is the deal with, like, depending on what number it is, is it thought that the higher numbers, the print has gotten better and better? It depends on the process, but <clears throat> realistically, um, most printmakers that are making their own work, um, they're supposed to all be identical. And so the, when, you, when you see a print, right, you have the bottom number that's how many of it exist, and the top number that, what number in the sequence. Yeah. I only know of one printmaker that actually, I mean, I keep track sometimes just to know what I've done, but at, when I round up my edition, like they're spread out everywhere, I lay them out, I move them around, I decide which ones get rejected, which ones get in. I don't have any idea when I print them. Oh, anymore. interesting. Okay. okay. But what determines uh, probably, I guess, desirability more is uh, like if it's, if you, there's only five in existence, right. that becomes it, much just more. Just the size of the yeah. edition. Right. What is the artist proof? So, an artist proof, um, 
if you're working in a shop where you're publishing work, like say you're printing something for Kiki Smith, and the artist proofs are the proofs, it's usually no more than 10% of the edition that the artist gets to keep. Okay. Um, so, and then the shop would sell the rest. Um, artist printmakers, like myself or my students or Deb, my colleague, um, artist proofs could be one that's outside of the edition. Like, like I'll, when I'm color proofing, so I'll try different colors, but I'm okay. like, I like that color, but it's not going to be my edition. It's like your or experiment. I printed it on a different... It's an experiment, but it's better than an experiment. It's one that you're like, I really like this. Like, I, I'll, I'll exhibit artist proofs. But. Do you have any thoughts on the verbiage of, like, prints versus reproductions when you're talking oh, about, yes. you know? Um, well, we call them hand prints. So they are where you make the matrix. And, and that can be done digitally, but the end result is inking and yeah. running through a press or squeegeeing with a screen print. Very different than, like, a G-clay print, which... Yeah. You know, I'm probably, most people are pretty accepting of those. I'm, I hate the idea. I just hate that. I'm just going to make a nice print of my painting. It's like, well, then make something that, make that your finished art. Why do you even have a painting? You know? Yeah, I wonder, I think for, um, like for the average person, maybe who's buying the idea that there's like printmaking where the actual art is, uh, you know, a one of a kind that is a piece. And the use of the word print for a G-clay print, just, it just confuses people if they don't really, right. really know what you're talking um, about. And that, that's a good, we um, once had an admissions person come through and say, this is where people from other majors come and make reproductions of their work. And I, I thought, that is exactly what print is. That's exactly is the not, opposite, right? right. Yeah. So when I make a print, it's not, I mean, I, I get inspired by my other work. Like, I'll make a drawing and I'll be like, oh, I think I want to make a litho like that. But I've never, I've never made a print that was from another piece. Right, exactly. It's always its own thing. And that's, I'm yeah, that's, kind of a purist that way. That's interesting that that person used that term because it, it's literally, it's like, it, it, it's like every reproduction can be, how many of this? Every reproduction can be called a print, but every print can't be called a reproduction, right? right? right. Yeah. And that's why, so we, use, that's why we use handmade prints. Yeah. I think that's a Does that help yeah. people? Yeah. Because I would think also for the pricing, like somebody's in a gallery show and they're looking at things on the wall and there's some drawings and there's some prints and some paintings and you want to make sure that potential buyers are looking at it and knowing that the thing that you've priced, like this is a one of a kind, this is <clears throat> right. know, a work right. of art. Yeah. It's not just a thing that came off of like a printer. Right. And yeah. for me, it changes the content of my work. So to me, it's, it's integral, you know, it's, it's, it, it is that you know form and content and yeah how i make it to turn you know affects what i'm saying you know so it's not just trying to say it with something that's easier to do you know how did you you mentioned a minute ago that when you paint you work really quickly why is that that it's so different for you oh i guess i'm so much i've done it so much longer mm -hmm. and i can take really loose underpaintings and you know make them look much tighter than they are too. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and also doing the same things with my paintings now. I'm leaving lot bigger sections unfinished. They're unfinished. Is it fun to like when you're doing painting that then you're working on canvas and panel and it's because in your printmaking it's always paper. So does that get a little tiring and you're excited for like a different substance? Uh, yeah, but you know the weird thing is and it frustrates me to death. Um, my most interesting paintings. Um, right now are on paper. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm dying. I'm like I so I. Um, <clears throat> finally, uh, being in the house I'm in for 20 years, turned the standing garage into a studio. Okay. And, um, it's just a great place to work, and I love it. And I'm like, I'm, I can oil paint. Big, giant canvas, and I'm oil painting. Yeah. And then I'm looking at these pieces on paper I'm doing with gouache and acrylic, and I'm like, ah, oh, those are so much better. You liked it better? <laughs> so much better. Yeah. Is this and during I'm, I'm, COVID you came up with... Your yeah. garage studio? Okay. Yeah. Um, and that was a bad time to be, you know, because everything was way more expensive, all the supplies. Oh, and it yeah. Was a, it was a crappy garage, so just having to, we had to do so much work. Um, I had a really good person doing it, but, yeah. you know, it was... Now you have But, but then, but it, yeah, and then, so now I'm carving a lot in my studio. Because oh. <laughs> I'm really into relief, which uh, COVID really pushed me into. I was going to ask you how you found balancing being a full-time professor with doing your own... It's a tough one, and, like, and, and all, it's one of those never-ending struggles, yeah. um, and I'm really, it's nice to be in printmaking because I can start things as demos, um, and I'm, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not like, a lot of the painting teachers do their own work in class, I've never been able to do that, because I, those are two different worlds for me. Um, the, the thing I have, I actually um, left teaching for times just because I wasn't getting enough time to do my work, but yeah. I really missed it. I love teaching, and I love working with, I mean, I find that inspiring, ultimately, but yeah. 
I've also adapted to, I used to be a really routine, like I like the nine to five, you know, working on your art kind of. Leaving the house. Like having times that I just force myself, you know, even if I'm just like sweeping my floor or something, where I'm in my studio or in my space, wherever I work. Right. I've adapted and now I will use SCAD's long breaks really well. Like I don't do holidays anymore. I'm just like, no, it's valuable time. I'm just, I'll visit people. There's that nice the, yeah. month long um, winter break. And <clears throat> right. And, and that huge summer break. Cause I don't teach in the summer. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't see how people do that and don't burn out, but, um, so that's your time to really delve in. Yeah. And so I'm really good at getting huge bursts of work done. Cause, it, cause it's always funny to me cause I'm always struggling with it. And like foundations a few times, is, can you like give a, they have this thing called talk about teaching you're really good at balancing the two. Can you, you know, talk about that? And I don't think I am. I'm like, no, I'm not getting enough done. I'm not going to do that. But um, I do get pretty, uh, you know, I can get a big amount of work. And I'm really into yeah. residencies, too. And you know, before COVID, I was, you know, I'd go go somewhere just to make work. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's one of the nice things about these long breaks and short quarters. Do you kind of always have, like a like, a series that you're working on, a particular concept that you're trying to, like, like say when summer is coming up pretty soon, do you already have an idea of a series you're going to do? Yes. Or yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and and it usually comes from you know things that I'm I do a lot of research and right now I'm researching like uh, I've always been interested in um, endangered animals and things like that, but yeah. endangered plants and how uh, I've been reading a lot about trees. Um, so those are starting to come into uh, my body of work and and even. Um, how migration works and how it's being interfered with by agriculture and all that. Yeah. Um, and that's the woodcut that you saw, the expanse of cornfield and that whole idea of these things all being part of our world, but still these animals having to cross these things. And um, I look at it metaphorically some, but I am actually just interested in animals too. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not using them. Like a lot of people use animals as like stand-in. As a metaphor. Or something. But I... You know, there's personal things in my work, definitely, and, and things that I don't, like I'm not, even though I'm an environmentalist, I'm not preachy about it. I don't, I, and I don't want to make work about that, but my awareness of it comes in. like It's like an observation. Yeah, but it's not saying this is bad, because I, I love drawing architecture and buildings and factories. So I'm not going, ah, oh, this icky factory I'm going to put back here. It's like, I love the form and, you know. Yeah. Um, it's sort of just sort of observing and marking the changes yeah, and, and seeing these things, but not only just what you see, like when I look out this window, um, <clears throat> but what I see in my mind. And I wish I could remember quotes better because an artist said something really interesting about an inner landscape. And I, I always think about that, how you internalize and film Yeah, it. there was that interesting period like during COVID at the beginning when people were home where we were getting all these reports of, you know, everything like bodies of water were rejuvenating and you know mm, the pollution mm -hmm. was dying like there weren't um there weren't cars on the road and so la the you could right, see right. you'd actually see the, the you know the sky further and then in the water like around italy that there weren't cruise ships anymore and so all the flora and fauna were coming back and there was like a period where it's like we reversed things a little bit and then it just mm -hmm. kind of roars back to life right that. the machinery of yeah. humans comes back to life and people go back to work and mm -hmm. but yeah they had like a little blip where it was like the animals and the plants were came back a bit right they got to roam right more. right i forgot all about that yeah yeah <laughs> that was fascinating to me when i when i'm just because you know everyone's like oh we don't really have that much effect on everything I and mean, you see that little oh my god yeah, yeah it was like two what what was it two months quote unquote of <laughs> right. like staying home <laughs> and then you realize how easy it would be right right if we really did reverse it. some of this stuff yeah so. um you mentioned residencies i know in the past on your cv you had a residency in iceland that you went to yes what was like what was a really crazy thing that you noticed about the the landscape there oh wow it's so strange and varied um yeah. but it, parts of it look like the surface of the moon yeah um and then there's these like when, when the Vikings were there, or the Nordic people, um, you know, they cut down all the trees. So all the forests now that are growing back are really stunted and, you know, it's so, uh. such a brutal environment. So they have these, like, mini forests. Mm -hmm. And then they have, of course, you know, the sea is really interesting there. And there's islands. Um, a lot of volcanic activity. Like, yeah. everything's bubbling and, you know, you'll... steam. Yeah, right? steam everywhere. Yeah. And there's rivers that, you know, there's underground things coming in, so you can bathe in them when it's really cold. It's I've like only the healing there, waters, right? I've only been there in the summer. Okay. So I was there, I, I did a residency in Akureyri, which is 
uh, like the middle, but up north. Um, and it was June, and I never saw it get dark the whole entire time. That Crazy. was very strange. Yeah, to me. yeah. And I like to nap, so it was like constant napping. Did you have so to like, like four hour black naps. out your windows somehow? At yeah. Night? <laughs> Yeah, I, I eventually had to do that. Did you do a series of work about the landscape there when you were there? Um, you know, it's weird. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a plain air painter okay. at all. Um, so I loved to work in my studio. So I was doing sketches, and I was, I have a hard time just drawing or painting a landscape. I have like, if I don't have something to say about it, I, yeah. I'm not that interested in. It. I mean, I like the technical part of drawing. But I would go out and make um, studies of things and then start to process those in the place I was staying. Yeah. Um, but when I travel, like, I take a lot of pictures and I observe a lot, but I'm not, I'll, I'll sit down and make a quick sketch. But I did, um, I did want to go there specifically for that kind of environment. But Just what I found visual, is it yeah. doesn't affect me the way I think it's going to ever. And I've, this happens every residency. I don't know what's going to end up happening. I have a plan and it never works oh, out Oh, interesting. That way. And the environment affects me in a weird way. Um, like I made really, I, I went to um, a place in Venice, it was on Murano, <clears throat> which is where the glass, the glass island. And I wanted, cause they could make big, really big. I was working really large and making etchings and they had mm. facilities to do that. And the environment affected me more, um, the, sort of the chaos of it. And the, the fact that the, the studio I was a little bit stressed because the studio didn't have a lot of things and I had to go like find them and the mood of the place affected me more than like there's some little things that pop into the work from there yeah. but it's almost like I'm doing things I could do anywhere but the actual way the piece came out was affected by the environment okay so it wasn't like literal things <clears throat> no, that you right. were seeing in it's Venice it's more like um, no, getting too touchy sounding but it is more the vibe that affects yeah. how I work and the fact of feeling out of place is it's it's uh it inspires me it's, it gives me energy and yeah and, it puts and, you on the back foot a bit yeah and, and it, it's probably why i switch uh, techniques all the time because i want to be a little uncomfortable yeah. and i want to i want to feel like things are new i think that 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 affects me a lot so this was a particular got, center in venice that you went to because they specialized in being able to do these really large etching yeah, plates yeah and it was okay. a really big space uh, I had such a great time there. Um, is that but, is that place still in existence? That no, people could it's go Venice to? Printmaking Studio. But there's another um, uh, Scuola Grafica there um, that is a really good place too. I'd love to go okay. there. Um, yeah. Do you have recommendations for uh, students studying printmaking? Of like, what are some amazing places that they could go visit to see these old school techniques? Um, well, more uh, yeah, they're more like residencies. But of course, okay. there's there's a bunch of lithography studios in in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, a former uh, um, Deborah Cheney is her name and she used to actually be a, a long time ago a shop tech like Lexi who you met um, and she studied at Tamron and went there and started this really amazing mm. atelier but they, they have a long history of lithography um, is this the thing in New Mexico you said yeah so okay. Tamron is in New Mexico there's a place called Crown Point for etching in San Francisco Oh, okay. That, cool. that would be a mecca for an etcher so there's just like a few random places around the US basically that are really specialized in um, and they're more just known for like if, if you're an artist and you want someone to make etchings for you yeah and you're gonna do the plates but they're gonna do all the the master printing work mm -hmm. um, like Crown Point in San Francisco yeah and for Tamron if you wanted to, if you were an artist and you wanted a litho done would go there and they, have, they train a lot of lithographers have you done any residencies in the southwest in general i've never it's one of the few places in the country i've never really spent any time okay so i'd I love to I yeah would love to. i think this would be super interesting because earlier you were talking about when you talked about the natural world and that like we just have this vision of it in our head and it's not necessarily what it actually is is that i have a couple of friends in phoenix and i've gone to visit mm. them a few times and when we would we would always leave phoenix and take a road trip out into the countryside and the so the hills, there's no grass and there's not trees like here. It's very weird feeling coming from the East Coast. And the hills are just dotted with cacti. But in my mind, I always imagined cact cactuses that they looked like, like in cartoons when you're a kid where it's a three-armed mm -hmm. cactus and the middle one is longer and then the two on the side are shorter. Like you just picture them. Cactuses don't look like that. There was literally no cacti that looked like that. They all are weird and misshapen and lumpy and crazy and they grow <laughs> in weird directions. And like none of them look like this perfect three-armed cactus that I had in my head. I thought that was so weird. Yeah, I would love to visit that. Yeah, you have to go see it. <laughs> but I am interested. I, I, I always go on these phases. I was, um, you know, reading, you know, books like Cadillac Desert and, you know, just about water. Um, and, and L.A. is one of my favorite cities. And 
just the fact that they don't really have any water. <laughs> They're like taking it from everywhere else, you know, and in, in, in Phoenix. Interesting, for example, yeah. And just those kinds of things. Are... It's funny that the, I forget that LA is like technically a desert. Yeah. I, I don't personally. I don't really think of a big city as being a desert. So that is, yeah, interesting. Can you um, talk a little bit about? So now you've been teaching since. How many years well, have you been a professor? I've, I've been teaching um, SCAD for 20 years. Okay, yeah. It said you moved, you moved to Savannah in 2001, is that mm -hmm. right, to yeah. teach? So is that longer than 20 years then? That's a little over 20 years. Um, and I took I took took some years off, okay. so I don't know, but I, I still count. So, this so. Is a, so it's a lot of teaching under your belt. Can you talk a little bit about, like, so how the, you have all these years of, like, breaking down processes and explaining it to people? How has that kind of changed your work over time? Or are there things that you've, like, figured other shortcuts or things you figured out or things oh, that's changed? That's a weird thing. My students figure out shortcuts. Okay. And they do it often by... So I get taught certain ways and I get these habits. And, like, for example, you know, when you, when you process um, a litho stone, um, you're supposed to let it sit at least overnight for the first time you process it. Okay. <clears throat> and my students you know, they sometimes, they either don't pay attention or whatever, or they're in a hurry. Yeah. I'm finding out that isn't true. You can, you can try it and see if it's going to work much sooner than that. Um, so I'll often, um, like be adjusting my way of teaching based on, you know, what my students are doing. And it's almost like I have this giant experiment going on, you know, so 10 people will do things wrong. Nine of them will it'll be wrong and then yeah. mess up their work but one of them will find like a new way of doing them. yeah oh, that worked really well and, <laughs> um, but yeah I'm, I'm also um, what's great about teaching print making compared to anything else um, and I actually now it's a horrible thing to say I get bored teaching painting now because um, there's not there's not enough things, but, technicalities but, um, to it. yeah printmaking is constant I feel like it's a lot like being a doctor you have to ask someone so many questions and pinpoint what went wrong um, so it's constant problem solving, but also there's students that are like, so if I did this, do you think it would work? And I'm like, let's go do it. Yeah, and yeah. we'll find out. And so it's so much fun because mm. you're constantly, like I, I learn so many new things every quarter. And, and the, so I seem really smart. Like I know all this stuff, but it's because I've seen, you know, if I was working by myself, I wouldn't learn right, right, as right. much. Um, You're seeing the result of so many other right, experiments. Right, right. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, yeah, but, totally. but it's, um, it's so exciting. Um, and I, it sort of made me, there was a time when, when I came back to teaching, after I had taken some time off, I wanted to see, like, uh, I'm going to go back to it and see if, you know, if I still even like it. Mm. And then I, I was getting, I was teaching in foundations and then the printmaking person at the time saw me working in there. It's like, oh, well, you, can you teach some print classes? And I thought, mm, I don't really teach printmaking very much, um, but I do it. So <clears throat> I started teaching it and then I started, I just, I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want to teach. Yeah. So, well, lucky that that person just happened to <laughs> yeah, come across no, you, right? Yeah, I, I was very <laughs> fortunate. Um, have but, you ever had any, so you're working with uh, Sharp Things and copper plates and heavy stones and acid have you ever had any injuries or you know accidents? they're all they're all minor the the scariest injuries i've had had nothing to do with the print shop there's students that aren't sleeping or they don't they're not eating all day and they pass out um, and that's really it yeah um you know that happens in painting classes too and um like that's, the morning that's, that there's a critique I, I, oddly that's that's the scariest part that is, okay. um and but yeah i, I get you know people you know smashing their fingers with stones that I but I haven't yeah. had any any anything really serious I hasn't um, had any acid situation. no I, I have had one acid situation but not a burn someone dropped one of the vials of oh. nitric acid so we pour soda ash on it get everybody out and the shop tech comes with sort of a hazmat looking suit interesting and, and, and bundles <laughs> it up but um do you have any uh, sort of words of wisdom for people getting into um teaching anything you wish maybe you'd been told that would have helped at the beginning I know this sounds this sounds strange but I used to always get really upset when people went into teaching because they thought well it's a really good way to earn a living if you're going to be an artist um right I think that's changing a lot I, I think SCAD has some really good teachers and um it, it, it changed from when I went to school where you know like in Northwestern these people were hired because they were famous painters and they wanted them their name attached to the university and they're not necessarily they good didn't teacher like, yeah. right so it's it sounds silly, but go into teaching because you like, you like it. You, um, 
Yeah. You like what you do, and you want to show other people. Um, and you're and you're just gonna you're just gonna make people waste their money if you're a bad teacher. It's it's true. It's yeah. You could make the argument that it's very very selfish to kind of like yeah, yeah. hamstring your future students that way if you're not that into it. Right. And um, yeah, I think I think that would be the the main advice. Do you have any? So we're kind of coming close to the end of it. Do you have any? Um, just talking about Savannah specifically, some things that you'd like to see happen in the art scene in the next few years around here? Yeah, I mean, I would love to see it grow. And I think the problem is how, you know, how does that happen? Yeah, what does that mean um, to What I am grow? seeing though, well, I'd like to see more, I'd like to see more galleries. I'd like to see more nonprofit places where, I think there's too many pay to show galleries. Okay. And I think that, you know, and that's something that's happening more. I mean, you know, when I, I was pretty lucky when I you know, graduated from grad school in the 90s, there was a lot of spaces that you would apply and they would you know, help a lot. Yeah, and there's still some of those, things. but they're out of Savannah. I want to see those in Savannah. And I think, I think there's a potential there that yeah. you know, just takes the right group you of people. You want to see more happen. curated you know, there's shows. Places, there's cool places like Sulphur and, um, <clears throat> and even, you know, even just as far as, uh, I mean, the Jepson Telfair is doing better at, um, you know, they have their, their, that art 912 yeah, room. Um, and that, yeah. that, um, you know, that has helped me, um, you know, so, so that's good to see happening, but there just needs to be, I think we have to get past like a critical mass where it's going to then suddenly take off. Yeah. It just seems yeah. to be pushing where to there's that just point. so much yeah. more and, and, and Savannah's growing and, you know, I moved here from Chicago. I'm like, ah, I'll give it a five, give it a five years and we're going to move on. And it grew on me and now it's, you know, I you know I wanted to to leave, not wanted to leave, but I was I'm thinking I'm not going to end up here, and I was always looking at where I wanted to live next. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm now like, it's yeah, twenty two like years. It I like it here. Yeah. You know, and it's growing nicely. I think. Well, um, I think it's interesting. So you know, there's I think there's two like community clay places in town because that's this other mm -hmm. field where you need a lot of equipment, and so it really works to have like a centralized place where people pay in and can share it. And like, what do you, why is it, it's so hard to have like a community printmaking and, place? And I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause that's what I should have talked about the most. Um, I, that's the most thing I, that I would like to see. And I, I was, um, there was a time when I was like dead set on helping that happen. And I don't know what got me away from it, but, um, a place for people to print after they get out of school. Yeah. Yeah. Really great. And, um, almost every city has that. Oh, and really? Savannah's one of the few that doesn't. I don't think Charleston does either. Um, and there's, you know, I know there's printmakers that have their own little press and stuff, but, you know. But yeah, um, like a centralized place where people can pool, where it'll be better equipment if mm -hmm. everybody's paying into it. And, and, you know, when I was in Chicago, I printed at three different places, you know, not at the same time, but, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, there was a printmakers collaborative where you could go and pay if you had a project you wanted to print um, and other printmakers to be around. Well, maybe this, maybe that's something you could work toward in the future. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to see that happen. Um, on your website, it looked like you, so you have a show coming up at the end of the year in Carrollton, Georgia. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And you... speaking of, so speaking of art centers that I'd like to see here, you know, that's one of them um, where, yeah, so I have that in October. Uh, the opening is, I think, in the end of October, beginning of November. Okay. We're still kind of working out dates for that. Um, and then there's, I'm going to do um, a ceramics printmaking workshop because they have ceramicists there. Oh, anything else that you want to, any final parting words to leave us with? No, I, I, I do think about, well, you know, when people, the advice I got, the best advice I got, which sounds, again, really ridiculously simple. Um, I had a teacher say, no matter what happens to you, keep making work. And it sounds easy, but you know, when nobody's paying attention and you feel like I, I'm, I just got rejected from you know, five things in a row, right, why right. am I doing this? Or you're exhausted from your day job. Yeah, you just, it's hard to keep yourself going, but it is it very is. important. It's hard to start up again if you stop for right. a while. Right, that's, that's exactly yeah, true. And, I, like and I, I, the longer I live, the more I see the wisdom in that. It just seemed like such simple advice. I'm like, that's all you have? That's great. You know, like, yeah. And that would be my, what I tell my students too. Thank you very much, Curtis. This has been lovely. Fascinating. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, everyone. This has been Curtis Barton. And of course, I will post links to your Instagram and your website in our liner notes so everyone can see his beautiful work. Thank you. Next up on WRUU, That Old Savannah Magic from 4 to 6 p.m. It's a variety show featuring Savannah history, radio theater, interviews, and music. You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul.